Our eschatology shapes our ethics. I hope you'll lean in with me a little bit and think about that. Our eschatology shapes our ethics. Eschatology is a theological word for last things. How we think about last things then should shape how we live, our ethics. Put another way, what you believe about the future shapes and informs and determines how you live now. So our eschatology shapes our ethics. Does that make sense? Now, what Jesus taught every day all through the Gospels, what so much of the whole Jewish tradition points to, what the prophets taught, everything that Jesus lived in anticipation of was a day, a day when earth and heaven would be one. What the whole Bible points to, what Jesus preached and embodied, the kingdom of God everywhere in fullness, the day when God's will would be done on earth as in heaven, that's the goal. Jesus comes to inaugurate the kingdom of God. So everything he said and does is part of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It's already here in him, his teachings, his actions, but it's not yet come in fullness. Already and not yet happening at the same time. The kingdom of God is everywhere, realized, come to fruition, in fullness, on earth as it is in heaven. That's the goal. And it says in the Bible, in Revelations 21, God's dwelling is with the people. That's the last chapter of the Bible. God's dwelling is really and finally and fully with the people. So our eschatology shapes our ethics. And it should work like this. We envision God's future, God's full reign, and we drag it into the present with how we live. Right? We envision God's reign, and it should look like this. As Ginger says, we love God, and we love our neighbor. We die to ourselves, and we live into God. We live generously, and we forgive generously. We practice kindness and hospitality, really and truly. We promote peace with justice. We strive for care and compassion in fullness. All of this is dragging that vision into the present and trying to make it real, participating with God in the kingdom of God. We live like that because we know we want to participate in what Jesus is talking about. We live like that because we want to be part of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the full reign of God. Our eschatology shapes our ethics. And just to be clear, eschatology, last things, eternal life, you could even say, doesn't begin when we die. It begins now. 
It's meant to begin now. It's more about the quality of time and the vitality of life lived in connection to God and in light of the promised and coming reign of God. Eternal life doesn't start when we die. It starts now when we live like that into the kingdom of God, sharing kindness living with love, working for justice, extending hospitality, following Jesus. Our eschatology shapes how we live. It's about experiencing the kind of life now that can endure and survive even death. Okay, with all this in mind, we listen to our passage today. It's from Luke chapter 16. Jesus is telling another story, and guess what? He begins another story in this very same chapter with these words. There was a rich man. He's trying to speak about how ethics flow from what we believe, eschatology. And it's especially hard for people who are rich. Guess who that is? It's us. Listen to Luke uh, 16, beginning at verse 19, and I invite you to read along with me if you want. It's on page 851 in your scriptures. Luke 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and no one can cross from there to us. He said, then Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, well, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. So remember, Jesus' goal is to teach and preach about the coming of the kingdom of God. It's come near in him, and he says, come on, let's get along with it. And he does this to motivate people to live in such a way that their ethics, the way they live, are shaped by the promised reign of God and its certain coming, eschatology. 
Now, I think you're aware that names in the Bible mean a lot. Names remind uh, us that we're known. And names often have other connotations too, like relationships and distinctions. Take note in this story. This story begins, there was a rich man. He doesn't have a name. He's just a rich man. But he does have some other important descriptors, dressed in purple and fine linen, which is to say he's not just rich, he's super rich. And then there's another descriptor. He feasted sumptuously every day. Every day. Jesus has already spoken various times in uh, this very gospel and in his journey as he walked along about the importance of sharing and the importance of caring, especially for the needy. And Jesus has already spoken numerous times about humility and generosity. Yet, hearers and readers take note, the rich man is conspicuously wealthy and dressed like royalty and feasting, not occasionally, but every day, and he has no name. He doesn't have a name. In very close proximity to the rich man, uh, deposited at the rich man's gate, but vastly separated from the rich man in life circumstances and in social position is a destitute man. His name? Lazarus. His name is remarkable in two ways. Jesus doesn't usually name people that come along his path. He names this one. And secondly, Lazarus, the name, actually means only God can help him. That's what his name means. Only God can help him. It says Lazarus doesn't feast like the rich man. He's covered by sores. He makes his meals from the scraps that fall from the rich man's table. And he suffers the degradation of the dogs who come and lick his face. So Lazarus is what his name means. Only God can help him. So there's, there's this great separation between these two men, the rich man, unnamed, and Lazarus, named. Except there's not this separation. Lazarus lives just outside the rich man's gate, close. Their separation, their disparity is neither inevitable nor is it necessary, and it could have been easily bridged by the initiative of the rich man to just open his gate or just reach through his gate, or just extend his generous hand. But this never happened. It never happened, even though the rich man knows Lazarus. He knows he sits at his gate, and he even knows his name. Gate, you might recall, is a public space where you render justice. Gate, all through the Bible, is often that location where compassionate care and justice is dispensed. This is, this is what the prophet Amos says. For I know, how many of you, I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, you who take a bribe, you who push aside the needy at the gate. 
wait, eschatology should shape our ethics, right? The rich man is mostly thinking about himself. He's feeding himself. He's keeping his clothes looking good for himself. He's paying attention to himself, not paying attention to Lazarus, who's the poor man who sits every day right at the rich man's gate, the place where we are to live out our ethics. Then we get to verse 22. At verse 22, there's a big shift in this passage, and the death of the two men reverses their life paths. The rich man receives a burial. That's good. Lazarus receives an even greater honor. He's carried away by the angels into the company of Abraham. The irony is overwhelming here. The one who received hospitality, no hospitality. The one who received no hospitality, Lazarus, comes into the presence of the one who epitomizes hospitality, Abraham. Abraham always welcomes strangers. Abraham was always hospitable in so many stories. And then the one who denied hospitality with all his wealth, with all his sumptuous living, even right at his own gate, this rich man with no name pleads with Abraham, even invoking his status as part of Abraham's family. He calls him Father Abraham. Bidding Abraham's help, bidding Abraham's care for himself, for his family, pleading to be released from the torment of the flames. Only a gate stood in the way of an act of mercy while they were alive, just a little gate. It was fixed and it was immovable only because the rich man refused to care for Lazarus. Reach through it, open it. Refused to recognize, refused to help Lazarus. Now, the separation, according to Abraham, has grown into a great chasm. He says, the chasm has been fixed. The rich man missed his opportunity to act with kindness, missed his opportunity to do justice, to walk humbly with God, missed his opportunity because of his conspicuous living, his Extravagant clothes, his sumptuous meals. He missed his chance to love God and neighbor. He missed his chance to die to self and live to God. He missed his chance to practice kindness. He missed his chance to practice hospitality. He missed his chance to give and forgive with generosity. He missed his chance to work for the reign of God. Every day, the rich man ignored Lazarus just outside his own gate. Perhaps he was lacking in eschatology. Who knows? He's certainly lacking in ethics. Jesus offers all of this as a warning. A warning. It's about the promised reign of God. It's certain. It's for sure. It's coming. Warning. Are we going to participate in it? And it's coming or not? Do we believe that God creates all things and actually completes all things? If so, it also means that our lives have a certain focus. We work with and for God. We work for the promised reign of God. 
We do it in how we live and how we work and how we talk and how we listen and how we do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God. That's our calling. Warning. What motivates us to sense that the story of Jesus is real? Warning. The story of Jesus is important. It's about our lives. It's about the whole world. What allows us to hear it? Get it into our bones so that it affects where we go and what we do every day. This is the point of the story. Hear and align our lives with the coming reign of God that's promised and certain. Warning. Warning. We can't claim Abraham as father like the rich man without a name was trying to do. We can't claim the promises of salvation if and when we do not pay attention to the poor and the needy, especially at the gate. Claiming Abraham, claiming God means living with and for God and loving God and loving what God loves and loving God's people, all of them. Warning, we cannot assume our lives are unfolded into God's love and care and never extend love and care to the people we encounter. Offer help to those who cross our path. Enfolded in life with God means serving God in all times and places. Warning. We cannot say we're Christians who follow Jesus and act with disdain to the people who live in our house or the people in our church family or the people on our streets. We cannot say we are children of God and continue to turn a blind eye toward racism and exclusion and all the other practices that run counter to what God intends for the whole world, the coming reign of God. Eschatology should shape our ethics. Warning, we cannot celebrate God's good creation and not pay attention to Greta Thornburg and other young people who are crying out for the world and changes in the world to save the planet. We cannot. Warning, dwell in our compassion, dwell in our conspicuous consumption, rather, and fail to address the growing income disparity that's happening in our culture. Just this week, new reports come out that say that while the economy continues to grow, so what else is growing is income disparity. Like the rich man and Lazarus, great disparity, a chasm. We have work to do. Warning. We cannot bask in God's eternal love and remain idle or indifferent to cries for peace with justice across our city, across this land. This is about our individual lives. This is about community life and our church. What do we do as a community? We have a name, Second Presbyterian Church. It means we have stayed in the city and we have a commitment to this city to feed the hungry, to work with prisoners, to welcome and help the hurting, to strive for justice. This is who we are. It's our, it's our name. It's our identity. And we have to keep living into it. We have to keep working in the world for the promised and the coming reign of God. What a great calling. What a challenge. What a joy. What a burden. What an opportunity. What a privilege. What a challenge. This 
rich man and Lazarus story provides for us a vivid warning. It creates pause. It creates discomfort. It creates encouragement. It creates motivation for us. It's wonderful. And it reminds us it's a matter of life and death, this calling. Life and death. Those who are blessed are called to be a blessing. Climate change, income disparity, gun violence, corruption, so much more. We have to live into it on earth as it is in heaven. Bring them together. This is a story about the rich man and Lazarus, and it invites us to think sincerely about our hearts. About our hearts, because this story actually spins on the rich man's heart. In the rich man's sumptuous life, he had no heart for Lazarus. He passed him by every day. In his death, he still has not figured it out. He clings to his ego. He clings to his status, calling Father Abraham to help him, claiming his former ways of being saved. Can't you just get somebody to come and put some cool water on my tongue? Can't you just get somebody to go and tell my family? The rich man is unable to let go of the world he has constructed. The world in which Lazarus is serving him. We're not meant to be served. We're meant to be servants. That's the message of Jesus. And in all of these warnings, Jesus wants us serving, moving, living into, loving into, serving into the kingdom of God. Jesus wants to change our hearts so that we can change the world for goodness and light for the full reign of God. Remember, our eschatology shapes our ethics. How about it? This is how one theologian put it. Our life will become not narrower, broader. Not more limited, boundless. Not more regulated, more abundant. Not more pedantic, more bounteous. Not more sober, more enthusiastic. Not more faint-hearted, more daring. Not more empty and human, more full of God. Not sadder, happier. Not more incapable, more creative. Let's go into God's future, radiant with joy. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray. We believe, O oh God, help our unbelief. And keep showing us the way following Jesus. Amen.